If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets, or there should be a stack at the ends and maybe even the middle of the side aisles. Um, If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. John is in the New Testament. It's the last of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, you can just turn right to page 767. Uh, John chapter 11. While you're turning there, a word of introduction. In the final Harry Potter novel, the Harry travels, someone's already laughing, Harry travels to Godric's Hollow, which is where his family lived, to see for the first time the grave of his parents. And on their grave is inscribed a quotation from the Bible, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which says, the last enemy to be conquered is death. And it's, it's striking in a modern novel to see an acknowledgement of something that previous generations have all known, but which we just try to keep pushed out of our minds, which is that death is an enemy. It comes when we least expect it. It takes what we think we can't live without, and nothing we do can keep it away forever. One of my favorite authors is an American named Wendell Berry, and all of his fiction takes place in this small fictional farming town called Port William, Kentucky. And the the inhabitants of Port William, they are a community. They're a fellowship, a membership of a kind that we don't see very much of anymore. They share everything together, their lives and their deaths. And in these, in these stories, in these novels, when someone in the, in the town dies, they bring the casket into their living room, into someone's living room, and it sits there for a day so people can come and say their goodbyes. I mean, the, the loved ones will sit around the casket and just they'll keep wake all night before the next day when they take the casket up to the cemetery on the hill to bury it. Death is right in their midst. But for us, we we try to keep death as far away as we can. We want it to happen in hospitals and then move from there to funeral homes and then from there to a cemetery that we don't have to see in everyday life. We we try to ward it off by obsessing about our diet and our exercise. We ensure ourselves against it. But we know on some level that it's coming. Now that is a dark beginning for an Easter sermon. And I know it. But here's why. Some of you men and women have had the experience of shopping for a diamond engagement ring. And when you pick out the stone, you know that the jeweler will display it to you against a background of black velvet. And the reason he does that is because against a dark background, the diamond catches the light and it sparkles and twinkles and says, buy me, buy me. And he he knows what he's doing. And so there are some things you can only see the beauty of against a dark backdrop. And one of those things is the resurrection. We're here this morning to celebrate that Jesus is alive, but we can't fully appreciate what the resurrection means until we see it against the dark background of what it conquered, death, the last enemy. We're going to look at a passage this morning. Not, it's not one of the passages that describes the events of Jesus' resurrection, but it teaches us what it means. It's a story that takes place at a funeral. So if you're there in John 11, or it's on the screen behind me, I hope, Uh, Let's read this extended account together from the life of Jesus. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Will you pray with me?
Lord, we, we marvel again at the power of your word. Jesus, you spoke to a dead man, and he got up. Because your words are the words of the living God. And so as we, as we gather around your word again, this book, we ask that you would speak to us this morning with power, that you would be present among us, and that you would accomplish all your purposes in this word for this church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. To know the true beauty of the resurrection, we need to see in this passage three things, and this is on the back of your bulletin as well if you want to follow along. Jesus' puzzling love, his greater priority, and his stunning proof. So first, Jesus' puzzling love. So John takes pains in this passage to show how deep the love is between Jesus and this family. These are not just acquaintances. So he points out that Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. And some of you may know that they appear in the Gospel of Luke. There's this story where Jesus comes to their house and Martha is super busy trying to serve and Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha complains and says, tell her to get up and help me. And Jesus said, she's chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So John wants us to know this is that Mary and Martha. And he, even in verse 2, he draws our attention to something else. He says, this is the same Mary who anointed the Lord with oil before his death. So that hasn't even happened yet in John. That comes in John chapter 12. But it's such a famous story that John says, I just want you to know this is that Mary. This is her brother. And, and he goes on and he tells us explicitly in multiple places how much love there is between these people. He says, I mean, even in the note that the sisters send to Jesus in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Later on, when he is at the tomb and, and he sees Mary weeping and all the mourners, and Jesus himself weeps in verse 36, what do the Jews say? They say, see how he loved him. There is a lot of history. There's a lot of love here. Jesus loved them, but it's a puzzling kind of love. And here's why. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved, there it is again, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He loved them. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he didn't go to him. He waited two days longer before starting out. Was it, why not? Why, why, did, why didn't he go right away? Was it because he didn't know how serious it was? No. John, John tells us that Jesus knew somehow, supernaturally, he knew the moment that Lazarus had died, right? The, the disciples say, oh, if he's sleeping, he'll feel better. And he says, no, Lazarus has died. No messenger came to him. He knew. He knew how serious it was. He knew that Lazarus had died. That's not why he didn't go. Was it because Jesus was afraid? Because the, the disciples remind him, they said, the last time you were down there, they tried to stone you. So maybe we should think twice about this going to Judea thing. But Jesus said, he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Which is to say, don't I know how much time I have? This isn't my time yet. He's not, it's not that he doesn't know how serious it is. It doesn't, it's not that he doesn't know. It's not that he's afraid of going. It says that he delayed because he loved them. That's a puzzling love. It puzzled Mary and Martha. Did you notice that when they separately encountered Jesus at the funeral, they spoke to him in the exact same words? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And on one level, that's a confession of faith. They're saying, 
We know that if you'd been here, you would have done something about this. You're powerful and you're good. We know that you would have, but on another level, it's a question. There's an implicit question there, which is, why didn't you do something? Where were you? Where were you when Lazarus was sick? And some, some people have pointed out that Jesus only delayed two days. He waited two days longer, but Lazarus had been dead four days before he got there. So even if he'd left right when he got the note, he wouldn't have made it in time. But there's a story earlier in John, in John chapter 4, where Jesus heals someone at a distance. He doesn't even go and see him. He just says the word and the person is healed. Jesus could have saved Lazarus's life, but he didn't. He chose not to. And maybe you felt this way. Maybe when you needed God to come through for you, he didn't. He didn't heal the cancer. He didn't save your job. He didn't bring your spouse home. And you wonder, like Mary and Martha did, if he could have done something, and he loves us, then why didn't he? What reason could there be? What could be more important than saving a man's life? Secondly, we need to see Jesus' greater priority, showing us himself. Jesus gives us hints through this passage that there's something even more important to him than just saving Lazarus' life. Look at verse 4. He says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse, let's see, verse 14 is even more striking. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. That's a strange thing to say. So that you may believe. Verse 40, he says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus wants his disciples and these witnesses to see something. He wants them to believe something. There's something he wants them to know. And that right there might give you pause. You might say, wait, are you telling me that Jesus let his friend die because he wanted to make a point? What gives him the right? What gives him the right to play God? Unless that's exactly the point that he's trying to make, that he wants them to see and believe that he is God. Because what does he want them to see? He says he wants them to see the glory of God. He said, this is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He wants them to see the glory of God in him. And what does he want them to believe? He says it most clearly in verses 25 and 26. He says to Martha, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Remember, Martha had said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she said, I know. I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the life. Our world is full of promises about how to find life, how to find true life, how to find your best life. And all these voices tell us, if you want to live a great, fulfilling life, you have to do it this way. Or if you, if you want to find eternal life, you have to do this thing. But Jesus doesn't say, 
He doesn't say, I'll show, you, I'll show you the life or I'll teach you the way to the life. He says, I am the life. The only place to find real life is in me. So what kind of life is he talking about? It's not just physical life, right? Because what does he say? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a, it's a life that travels, that endures through death. Though he die, yet shall he live. It's eternal life, a life that even death can't touch. If you, he says, I am eternal life. If you have me, you have it. If you don't have me, you don't have it. And that might seem incredibly narrow to you for a man to claim to be the only way to eternal life. And if Christianity were something that people had just invented, a small group of people looking for power had made this thing up, that would have been incredibly narrow of them. But what if it's true? What if there's something so wrong with us that there's only one cure? So diseases, right, the more serious the disease is, and oftentimes the fewer, the fewer treatments there are for it, like seasonal allergies, there's a, a whole aisle of things that you can try to combat them. But, but more serious diseases, there might be only one thing to try, and it might be experimental. Or there might be no cure at all. What if, there's, what if humanity has a problem so severe that there's only one solution? We do have a problem like that. The last enemy death. Jesus says there's only one cure for death, me. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the giver of life. God himself come to bring life to you. I want you to see this about me. It's so important that you see this, that I'm willing to let my friend die so that you can get this, so you can believe this. This is my greater priority. Now, if Jesus is telling us the truth, if he is the only cure for death, then how do we get what he offers? How do we receive what he's come to give? And he tells us three times in these two verses, he says, whoever believes in me, everyone who lives and believes in me, do you believe? We receive eternal life through belief, through faith, through trust. In Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, in Jesus, God became man. We, we trust that the stories are true, that when we couldn't find God, God came looking for us. And some of you are wondering, well, that's fine and good, but what if my faith is weak? What if this doesn't come easily to me? What if I'm just not, I'm not the kind of person that can just like put away the questions? I, it's hard for me to just let go of control and trust in someone who lived 2,000 years ago. I want you to see in this passage the tenderness of Jesus. None of these people got it, right? The disciples didn't understand. Mary and Martha didn't understand. The crowds didn't understand. But Jesus wanted to help them believe. And that's why he did something to help their faith. He gave them a sign, which is the third thing we need to look at. Jesus' stunning proof. Defeating death with a word. Now, in verses 33 and 38, there's a word John uses which is hard to translate. It's this word where he says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. And that comes like right in the midst of when Jesus is weeping. And so you might think, well, Jesus was deeply moved with sadness. But that's not what the word means. The word means that he was deeply moved with anger. He was indignant. He was outraged. As he watched his friends weeping for their brother, as he looked over the crowd of mourners, he was angry. 
And some people have read that and thought that he was angry at the unbelief that he was seeing. Angry because these people were, were, they were grieving, they were mourning without hope, they weren't trusting that Lazarus was going to rise again. And that's possible, but it seems in a tension, it seems at odds with the tenderness we see in the rest of the passage, his, his seeking to help them believe. So I, I'm more inclined to believe what others have said, that his anger is not with the people or with their unbelief, his anger is with death itself. He's angry at the enemy who steals away young men from their families, leaves them bereaved and inconsolable. He's angry at what death has done to the world he made good. And if that's right, I want you to see how that drives what comes next. Jesus is outraged at death. It's as though he's saying, this is not right, and I'm going to do something about it. So what does he ask? He says, where have you laid him? Show me where the death is. Right? This is a scene we've seen replayed in movies and TV shows, like in The Godfather, not that I'm endorsing The Godfather, but in The Godfather, Sonny goes and he sees his sister, and he sees on his sister's face bruises. You guys remember this scene? And he, he bites his knuckle, and where does he go? He goes looking for her husband. Right? Kim and I are watching through the show Suits. It's about lawyers. Tim Koch said we'd like it, and he was right. And in, in Suits, Mike, who's one of the main characters, is you know, with his girlfriend, and she she tells him one of her ex-boyfriends has made a move on her. And what does he do? He just leaves the apartment and he goes looking for that guy. That is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. He says, he sees the devastation left by death and he says, show me where he is. The reformer John Calvin comments at this point. He says, Christ does not approach the tomb as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. Jesus is looking for a fight. Life versus death. And see how completely in command Jesus is. He is done teaching. Now he's giving orders. He says, take away the stone. And then he says to the dead man, Lazarus, come out. And someone has commented, has commented that he had to say Lazarus by name because otherwise all the tombs would empty. So powerful was his word. And again, in verse 44, unbind him and let him go. Jesus has come to battle death, and he's so completely supreme over it that with just a word, he sets Lazarus free. Maybe for you, this story is just beyond belief. Maybe for you, these miracle stories are what spoil Christianity. Couldn't we just focus on the teachings of Jesus without all these crazy stories that we know could never actually happen? But John goes to pains to show us that this is real history. He tells us it happened in a real place, in Bethany. He tells us when it happened. It happened before the Passover. He names people who were there. He names the person who was raised from the dead. He, he mentions these crowds of witnesses. He makes himself vulnerable to contradiction because he knows that he can't be. John was there. He knows that it's true. This really happened, and it was a sign. Jesus did it to reveal his glory, to show that he is the resurrection and the life. Eternal life made mortal. God became man. Who has such power over death but the author of life himself? Death is an enemy. It's the last enemy, but it has a conqueror. Death is too strong for us. We can't do anything to stop it, but it's not too strong for him. He can disarm it so completely that even when our bodies die, we continue straight through into the presence of God forever. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And on the last day when Jesus comes, everyone who believes in him will rise from the dead and live with him forever in a creation 
perfected, rid of death once and for all. He is the resurrection. And we are all facing death. Maybe you're facing it more directly than the rest of us. Maybe you know that it's not far off. Or maybe it's the death of a loved one that's on your mind. Maybe you're seeing in, your si- in yourself, in your body, the signs of aging. You know you're closer to the end of the race than to the beginning. Because of Jesus, we can stop pretending death isn't out there. We can face it because we know the one who is the life. We can trust him. We can believe. And maybe you're decades from death, but you are aware that the life you have is only physical life. You don't have this life that we're talking about, life with God, eternal life. It doesn't start with death. It starts with belief. It can start for you this morning through trusting in this Jesus. Listen, eternal life is found only in trusting Jesus. That's what John is showing us. It's that simple. He is the resurrection and the life. He raises the dead. He offers life to those who believe, who trust in him. Okay, but what does that have to do with Easter? Everything. The shadow of the cross lies across this passage. So remember what the disciples said when Jesus said he was going to go to Judea. They said, they're trying to stone you there. They were afraid that if he went, that if he went to Lazarus' tomb, that he, he, would, he was walking to his death. Look at what Thomas says in verse 16. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. They were afraid if Jesus takes this trip, it's going to end in his death. And you know what? They were right. That's exactly what happened. So after Lazarus is raised, the, the news starts going everywhere. I mean, everyone is buzzing about what he has done raising this man from the dead. So look at verse 47, a little past our passage. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Skip down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And John wants us to see this connection. The way Jesus is able to be the resurrection and the life for people like us, for people who sin and struggle and find it hard to believe is that he went through death for us and rose. On Friday, he submitted to death, to the just penalty of our sin. And on Sunday, he emerged, not just from the tomb, but from death itself, having conquered it from the inside. His resurrection means that today he can offer life, eternal life, to all who believe. He offers to us himself. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are the resurrection and the life. And you suffered death in our place so that you could offer life to us today. Lord, you, you suffered on the cross. You were forsaken by your Father. You took all of our sin upon you, and you were glad to do it because of the greatness of your love for us. And we thank you. And we thank you, Father, for sending him. And we thank you, Spirit, for moving John to write this down so we can rejoice in it this morning. And I pray that you would help us 
spirit to rejoice in the resurrection and the life and to receive it by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.